This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm back on the roof of Parliament with James Forsyth and there has been a mini reshuffle today. James, bring us up to speed with all the appointments. So the big news is that Chris Eaton-Harris has become the new chief whip. The existing chief whip, Mark Spencer, has moved to be leader of a house. And Jacob Rees-Mogg, who was leader of a house, has moved to be minister for Brexit opportunities. Now, this mini reshuffle is quite telling in that it isn't focused on the departments that are in charge of delivering things to the public. It's focused on those in cabinet who are responsible for, for dealing with their fellow parliamentarians, which I think tells you where... Boris Johnson thinks the problem is so there's a new chief whip, there's a new leader of a house. I also think it is quite telling that Boris Johnson has managed to conduct a reshuffle without sacking anybody. Now, that is, I think, quite a sensible move on his behalf because as one cabinet minister said to me yesterday, the problem is that reshuffles always make more enemies than friends and in the current circumstances, enemies become signatories to letters. Now, if you don't sack anyone, you tend not to make enemies in a reshuffle. So I think we can see the political dynamic playing out there but I have to say that as reshuffles go this is I think one of if not the most limited I've seen which is which involves you know, more than just kind of one person has gone off to be a European commissioner in the old days and someone else has come in to replace them kind of thing the shadow whipping operation around Johnson have been very keen on two things they've been very keen on a shake-up of Downing Street and a shake-up of the whip's office they have got that and there's also a new deputy chief whip coming in as well but but I do think it kind of advertises the limited uh currently limited ambitions of a Johnson government that a reshuffle isn't concentrating on you know, who is the minister for reducing the NHS backlog that you've written about today that Sajid Chapman was talking about in the House of Commons but on all these very internal Westminster things. Yeah, I also think we've had a response from the number 10 operation today and uh, Boris Johnson's allies to this ongoing row about uh, the Jimmy Savile smear against uh, Keir Starmer. Obviously, last night, uh, Keir Starmer and David Lammy were were chased by anti-vax protesters who were shouting about a number of things, Julian Assange and Jimmy Savile. And there were very quickly accusations that this had been stoked by the Prime Minister because he talked about Jimmy Savile in his response to Keir Starmer when they were discussing the Sue Gray report last Monday. The response from those around Boris Johnson has been to say that's nonsense because these protesters were talking about lots of other wild conspiracy theories as well. Now that just shows how limited their options are because they're essentially saying, oh yes, the Prime Minister (laughs) does talk like some of these people who are running around chasing and intimidating politicians outside Parliament, but it's not his fault that they were saying this. Which again, it it reminds me a little bit of... um, towards the end of a game of chess where you've got like your king and one pawn and you're just moving them up and down around the board waiting for the the powerful pieces of of the other player to to, you know get you in checkmate this is where the prime minister has basically ended up but jimmy savile bomb in the house of commons was such a mistake on many levels first of all i mean there are some things that are not suitable for subjects of political attack the second problem is that the jimmy savile line is is pushed by very crazy people like the people who were shouting and heckling at Keir Starmer and David Lammy. And when the Prime Minister associated himself with that, now he would say that he later clarified what he meant, but you know, but it, but you know, when he brought it up in the House of Commons, you know, linked Jimmy Savile and Keir Starmer, 
he made himself very vulnerable to what happened last night because you know it ju- i don't think these people didn't believe it until the prime minister said it i mean they've, they've been shouting these kind of crazy things for, for a while but the prime minister now looks like he is associated with them as he said which, which is just an appalling look for the prime minister of the united kingdom of great britain and northern ireland and i think this i think the problem with the whole thing is that you know I think it was a mistake when Boris Johnson said it. And you can say, oh, the House of Commons that day was a particularly unpleasant atmosphere, which, which it was, you know, Keir Starmer was, you know, uh, talking very personally about Boris Johnson and his, and his failings as, as Keir Starmer perceives them. But I think, that, I think Boris Johnson missed a massive opportunity on, on the following Wednesday at PMQs when Lindsay Hall kind of began the session by basically appealing for calm, because remember Ian Blackford had been kicked out in a lot. I thought Boris Johnson then could have taken the chance to say, look, I withdraw what I said. It was, it was heated on Monday. I've heard what you said, Mr Speaker. We should try and rise above it. I think, and I think that whenever any minister tries to defend this remark, they either make things worse or create a kind of cabinet split story. And I think it's just, it would just be much more sensible to get off this. It, 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 you know, it, it is not going to profit the Prime Minister. He's already lost you know, one of his longest-serving aides, Minira Mirza, uh, over the over it, and it, and it just it doesn't. I don't. I really do not see what he gains by lengthening this round. So we've talked about the limited options around the comms operation. We've talked about the limited options displayed in the in the reshuffle. The question that everyone is asking from day to day, including the prime minister, who I think regularly asks uh, his his comrades, uh, "How fucked are we today?" Is Boris Johnson more safe after what he's done today or less safe? So I think that the appointment of Steve Barclay, although obviously some people say, how can he be a, a minister and an MP and chief of staff, has actually gone down quite well with a lot of Tory MPs in that he is seen as someone who is competent, someone who's a safe pair of hands. And there's a view that, yes, you can argue it's not ideal having an MP as chief of staff, but for a Downing Street, it often seems quite detached from what Parliament thinks. You know, it has its advantages. I think today Chris Eaton Harris is someone who is a kind of uh, a good chief whip should be a two-way valve. And I think the problem with Mark Spencer was he had that remarkable success in a way when they took the whip away from 21 Tory MPs. And that did show the public that you know, Boris Johnson was serious about kind of breaking the Brexit deadlock and I think did help them win that majority. But I think the whip's office after that was in danger of becoming a kind of one club golfer with a kind of, you know, a higher on threats than it was on persuasion or cajoling. I think Christina Harris will be more of a, look, I will take back to the number 10 what you said. I'll tell them that you're prepared to vote for this, but you wouldn't be prepared to vote for that. You know, he, is, he, is a, he is a more natural figure in, 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 for that kind of more nuanced whipping that the government has to have in, in this situation. And so I think that will, that will help him a bit. But I also think that the reshuffle is so obviously defensive in nature that there will be an element that, you know, people will wonder if, you know, that, that is this the kind of limit of the reshuffling ambitions? Uh, and I think also some people will wonder, uh, you know, and I think there are hints already being dropped of more changes coming after the May elections. And if things pan out, I mean, the kind of the, the, the strategy that you hear from those close to Boris Johnson is if we can get to Thursday, that is recess. And, you know, their view is that, that because Tory MPs, you know, they, 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 no, I don't think they like to write them on vellum, but because they don't like the idea of putting their letter to Graham Brady into an email or a text message or a WhatsApp, you know, they feel that, you know, with MPs away, that gives them some breathing space and some time. And that makes it more likely that they can get to May. You know, someone said to me, you know, that you, you forget that there are only seven sitting weeks between now and the local elections in May. So Parliament's only here for seven weeks. 
But I do think that at some point you have to get back on the front foot rather than being defensive. And I think the problem at the moment is that a lot of those people who are most loyal to Boris Johnson in the cabinet, for example, I think Nadine Doris and Jacob Rees-Mogg, think that getting on the front foot involves kind of coming out swinging, being quite aggressive. I don't think that's the right approach, but I also think there is another problem, which is as long as these stories hang over the government, it's quite hard to do that because we've had last week the levelling up white paper and the government spending £9 billion to help people with their energy bills. Neither of those have had the political afterlife that you would have expected. You know, I mean, when was the last time you had a conversation with someone about either of those policies? While as in normal times, you know, that would be something that you would hope as a government would sustain you for quite some time. Yeah, and we've had another example today of, of what might in other times have been a, a big agenda-setting issue, which is the NHS uh, backlog. Uh, Sajid Javid uh, gave a... Uh, a delayed statement to the House of Commons today, unveiling an agreed plan after a row with the Treasury over uh, the amount of money that was being spent and where it was going as well. And there are lots of new targets in this plan, but a number of things are are missing from this, and they show, I think, the increasing power of the Treasury. Um, And the thing that was pointed out by so many MPs from across the House and by a lot of the... um, a lot of the you know, NHS organisations, is that there is still no workforce plan. So you still don't have commitments to train up enough doctors and nurses to actually be able to, in the long term, get the NHS back on a, on a sustainable footing. You've got doctors and nurses who have not taken their annual leave, who are exhausted, uh, who are working extra hours to try to, to catch up. And this is this has not been sustainable for for quite a while because we have higher sickness rates in the NHS as a result of this. But it's it's definitely not sustainable for the next few years. And we had an admission by Sajid Javid that waiting lists are going to continue to rise over the next few years. And as you as you say, James, it, the levelling up white paper and other policies have not changed the political debate. It's very difficult to change things immediately with the NHS. And so you've got a couple more years really of people being very upset that they or their mother or you know their spouse or even their child is stuck on a waiting list for a very long time receiving possibly inferior treatment. The thing that jumped out at me is that the NHS waiting list is to keep rising until March 2024. Now if you consider that I think the two most likely dates for the next election are May 2024 or September 2024 that is perilously close to that and also how big will the waiting list be at that point and you know I think you know there is no easier charge for a Labour politician than you can't trust the Tories with the NHS yeah. just look at the state of it and I think this is you know I think the, the, the danger of the Tory party is that it essentially made a, a strategic choice with the national insurance tax rise that it was worth risking their reputation on tax to give to get more money to the NHS to clear the backlogs before the next election if this curve is only going to start to bend downwards in March 2024, they risk the worst of all worlds, which is they go into that election with people, with people saying, "Ah, oh, you know, you say you wouldn't raise, it. you said you wouldn't raise our taxes, but you did put up our national insurance to do this," and then people turn around and say, well, "And what did we get for it? These NHS waiting lists have only just started to come down." I mean, this is this is the real danger. If, if NHS waiting lists do not start to come down until March 2024, in the absence of something else, 
that strikes me as incredibly bad news for the Tories' electoral prospects. If you look at how the last waiting list crisis was tackled, which was uh, in the Blair years, the, the 2000s, when there was a real existential worry about the health service and whether public support for it would continue, whether middle-class people were going to, to move to just having their, you know, their long waits solved by going private. The way that was solved was more money, but there was also this relentless, possibly slightly bullying focus on getting NHS trusts to meet their targets, you know, sort of shouting down the phone, P45 targets as, as they were known. You don't have a government with that authority to do that at the moment. You also don't have a workforce that's going to respond to that. I mean, the culture has changed anyway, and I think, you know, all to the good, because I think some of the aspects of that shouty target-driven culture uh, led to some very bad outcomes for patients and some, and some dreadful situations. But at the moment, you've got NHS staff who have been working relentlessly, and the government just doesn't have the moral authority and actually shouldn't be, you know, shouting down the phone at trust managers. So so where does it go? How does it replicate the success of those Blair years? I'm not sure it can on the NHS. I also think there's another crucial difference. In the Blair years, there was a kind of... They hired in a huge amount of staff from abroad. At the moment, you've got both a global shortage of doctors. I mean, you know, the WHO say I mean, about 2 million short worldwide, which makes it much harder to hire, hire doctors in. And there's also a view that, you know, that essentially um, going to developing centres and hiring a very large number of their nursing staff or their medical staff, you know... Is unethical. Is unethical. So so how are you going to... And because you talked about workforce, and that, that, that is a, a very valid point, but it is worth remembering that in Theresa May's first conference as party leader, Jeremy Hunt's big announcement was about new medical schools. I don't think a single doctor trained in any of those new medical schools has yet to start working in the NHS because it just takes so long to train a doctor and I think this is one of the points I think you're you're totally right about workforce planning I think that Jeremy Hunt's idea of a kind of OBR for the NHS workforce is a very sensible idea the problem is you could create an OBR for the NHS workforce tomorrow it would have no effect on these current waiting lists because it takes so long which is one of the reasons why I think the treasury has been successful in blocking it because you know talking about saving money in the long term is, is one of those things that you and I get lots of people coming to us saying we've got this great idea which is going to save the country 10 billion pounds and then they say but it'll be in 10 years time and the treasury has to pay this much up front and you're like that's just not going to happen you know that sort of long-term planning is is very very hard to get any government to, to get into the mindset to do thank you James and thank you for listening